Hello and welcome to the Danielle Newnan podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's special guest is Dex Hunter-Torek, a speechwriter and communications leader who has had the unique experience of working closely with some of our top tech leaders, including Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page and Eric Schmidt. After starting his career at the UN, where Dex worked with UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, Dex moved to Google before heading to Facebook where he led executive communications and served as Mark Zuckerberg's personal speechwriter. He then went to SpaceX where he worked with Elon Musk and the senior management team as head of communications. Dex is currently head of communications at the Oversight Board, an independent body that was created to help Facebook and Instagram make the most informed decisions when it comes to content permissions. Essentially, they help decide what posts to leave up, which to take down, and why. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss Dex's upbringing as the son of a Burmese refugee, what tech companies get right and wrong about storytelling, and the importance of independent bodies like Oversight when it comes to content moderation in our digital age. Here is my conversation with Dex Hunter-Torek. Dex, thank you so much for joining me today. With all my interviews, I always like to go back in time and I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up and what were some experiences that shaped you? (laughs) That's a great question. I think I was probably a giant nerd and I was a very awkward child, actually. I had very bad eczema when I was a kid. And because of that, it meant that I couldn't play a lot of sports. And I think Interestingly, even even though I never was a very sporty child, I do recognize the incredible value it creates. You know, you spend a lot of time getting to know other kids. It creates teamwork, gives you exercise, obviously. I didn't do any of those things, really. (laughs) So I spent a lot of time with books and I spent a lot of time studying. You know, my favorite TV show when I was a kid was watching the BBC 6 p.m. evening news. And my very first memory as a kid is the start of the Gulf War being announced on the BBC 6pm evening news. I think it was by Michael Burke, the uh, British newscaster back then. So when I was very little, I had this huge interest in world affairs, which obviously continued to the present day. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of nonfiction. I think I probably read more nonfiction than I do now. And I could you know, pick up an encyclopedia and be happy as a clown for hours and hours and hours. That was probably one element. The other element of my childhood that I think has also remained a, a sort of consistent thread throughout my life is I've always been an internationalist. So I grew up in a couple of places in the southeast of England, and this was obviously during the uh, 80s and 90s, and society was pretty homogenous. Our family was one of the only non-white families in the town where I first uh, grew up. And then when we moved to Kent, when I was probably about seven or eight, Certainly, we were the only non-white family I ever recall seeing. And walking down the street, people would literally stare at me. They'd be like, who's that Asian kid walking along? Uh, Kids would come up to me at school and say, can I feel your hair? Because I want to feel some Asian hair. And I just consistently thought it absurd and very, very challenging to try and sort myself using the labels and the boxes that other people would try to conjure up 
in order to understand who I was. People would come up to me at school and they'd say, are you Chinese? Are you Japanese? Are you Asian? Are you British? Are you European? Do you consider yourself English? And I did not understand why I had to sort myself into one of these boxes. And of course, I would always, as a nerdy, sarcastic kid who had no other defenses except being a wisecracker, I would say, I'm a citizen of the world. If I really wanted to rile kids up at that age, I'd say I was European because nothing riled up kids back then more than saying you were European, particularly when you had something like the European football championships coming up. So that was me. Um, I feel like being a big nerd and being an internationalist have remained constant threads throughout my life. And if anything, they've probably grown. <laughs> it's really interesting because I didn't know that about your childhood. And I think the fact that you faced that adversity, but like you said, you were able to use your humor to fight back. I think when I look at your career today, it's so much a thread, the internationalist bit and the technology and being a nerd. And I hope you're a proud nerd because I remember <laughs> growing up, nerds were, you know, vilified and now they're ruling the world. So Yeah, absolutely. I was having this conversation with someone recently because very much, I think, when I was a kid, being a nerd was to be an outsider. And now, in a way, everyone's kind of a nerd. You know, we're in the era when people will pour through the lore of Marvel movies for hours and hours and hours, trying to construct all the links between the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, you know, the Marvel Comic Universe. And we're, we're sort of in this era where everyone is pretty tech-savvy in some way or another. And so I think that has infused our culture with this love of other things which are sort of science-adjacent, like science fiction. Mm, absolutely. I wanted to bring up the subject of your father, if that's okay, because I think he obviously had a huge impact on your life. And I wondered if you could tell me a bit about him and, and his upbringing. Yeah, I mean, he had a very bad upbringing. And he was a refugee when he was a little boy. So when he was four years old, the Japanese invaded Burma, where he was living, and he and his family had to flee. And they fled to India. And they had this incredibly traumatic journey from the city where they were living, which was at the time called Maulmain in Burma. And I didn't learn any of this story until the last year of my father's life, which was in 2015. And we had done this journey together to Western Australia to have one last trip together. And uh, he had pretty um, aggressive cancer by this point. And he told me the story about what the evacuation was like from Maulmain. The radio, the BBC, had been telling people until just a few weeks before the invasion that there was absolutely no chance that Burma was going to be invaded. And certainly if it was attacked, it would not fall. And when the invasion came, it was a huge shock. Everyone was caught unprepared. And so my father's family had you know, gone to the train station to try and get the last train out of Maulmain. And the city was under air assault by this point from the Japanese. So the air force was bombing the city and there were tens of thousands of people fighting to get on the very last train. And he told me the story about people literally like murdering each other, fighting, trying to get on this train. And his family managed to get onto the train, but there wasn't room for their pet dog. And he told me the story of the train leaving the city and the dog running after the train. And it just kept running and running. And eventually they came to a bridge and the dog couldn't continue. So he just saw this dog receding into the distance. And my dad told me that is why we never got a dog as a kid. As a kid, I'd spent a lot of time, like most kids, lobbying to have a pet dog. And my dad had always consistently denied this. And it turned out there was this whole backstory. That was my bit of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but just my own life, about why we'd never managed to get a dog. And I realized then just how much my father's incredibly traumatic childhood had played this 
decisive role in so many of the things that later I had just sort of taken as a sign that he was just an irrational, you know, or, or terrible person. You know, the fact he maybe he just didn't like dogs. Maybe he just wasn't a very receptive father. So anyway, that was just one memory. He was in India. He grew up in Calcutta and came to the UK in the late 1950s. And he didn't really know anybody. He certainly had no resources. He made his way to the UK. He did this sort of succession of odd jobs and things just to survive for many, many years. And it wasn't really until he met my mother at the start of the 1980s that things began to settle down a bit for him. But I think the whole experience of growing up with that kind of trauma really colored his life. Absolutely. And and in some way, it would have colored yours without you knowing, because obviously you didn't find out till later. But it is an incredible story and, and shows the grit and resilience of your father. You ended up at United Nations, which, when, like I said, when I look at your career, nothing kind of surprises. It all seems to fit really well. <laughs> but from the United Nations, you ended up at Google as a speechwriter. So I wanted to know, how was that transition and what exactly were you doing at Google? Yeah, it's funny that you say it all seems to fit together. I guess um, there's that Steve Jobs quote, right? You can only connect the dots looking back, not looking forward. So now it makes sense. At the time, I remember a lot of people would say, huh, well, like, what's, what's the deal here? Um, you know, for me, the consistent thread between the UN and Google was that both organizations were in their own way setting out to try and change the world. And I don't mean that in a sort of hand wavy, you know, every action we do impacts the world. Both organizations are very focused on global missions. The UN obviously has a mission that is trying to deliver peace and security to the world. And Google, at the time, their mission was very, very clearly focused on trying to make all the world's information universally accessible and, and organized. And I really saw them as reflections of the same mission. You know, both of those tasks are essential for the progress and the prosperity of human civilization in the 21st century. And both of them are civilizational missions. They are things that we need to accomplish in order for us to think and to act and to prosper as a human community around the world. Of course, there were very, very different capabilities. The UN was a place that was extraordinarily frustrating to me for a lot of the time, even as much as I admired and continue to admire the mission and a lot of the individual people who work there. At the same time, you recognize just how much bureaucracy there was and the fact that the UN ultimately and this is why I left it, it's not an organization that's designed to save the world. The UN is an organization designed to stabilize the world. And those are two fundamentally different objectives. And I think a lot of people who are young and idealistic and maybe a bit naive like myself, you know, you go in there in your early 20s and you work at a place like that and you think, I'm here to save the world. And then you realize after a couple of years, actually the UN is there designed to restrain the worst excesses of humanity. It's designed to stop us having World War III but it isn't necessarily configured for us to advance in a big way as a civilization. Um, it's too busy trying to keep things the way the world was in 1945. Google, fundamentally different. Google was trying to come up with tools and infrastructure that would allow people to prosper and for our society to advance. And I think it has played a critical role in doing that by enabling the power of information. But this is a long-winded way of me saying I really do consider them facets of the same thing. And actually, I think all the other places I've worked in my career, I also see them as facets of that 
task, which is trying to advance human civilization in some very small, modest way, while having a huge objective, also being realistic about what are the little pieces of that big challenge that we can go and pick off. It's interesting that you say that because lots of people, I think, lay people maybe, don't understand that these tech companies are capable and are pushing for that. I think there's a lot of criticism that's thrown around about how Facebook and Google and Twitter, they're all kind of destroying humanity. And I've always thought of it more like, especially with Twitter, it's a mirror. You know, it holds it up to society and shows all the differences. I want to get onto that later, actually. But in terms of Google, what was it speech writing that you were doing? When I had joined Google, I was recruited at the end of 2010 and I joined at the start of 2011. I was originally on the product team for a short period and it was quite a strange landing place. At the time, there was an executive communications squad. It was just a a very small handful of people who were working on the product team, which was led by Jonathan Rosenberg. And Jonathan is a fantastic, absolutely phenomenal technologist. He's a longtime Googler. And I was working for someone called Alan Eagle, who is a very dear friend now. And Alan had hired me to come in and help Eric Schmidt to do his public speaking. And Eric at the time was CEO. He then made this transition to being executive chairman, which happened pretty soon after I joined. And so it was really moving from a role where Eric was also running the overall organization to one where he was still a very prominent leader. But his main focus really was being this sort of ambassador from Google to a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of different communities and talking a lot more about public policy, talking a lot more about the value that Google could create in society and trying to articulate that value to different communities and to advance partnerships and so on. After a short period of being at Google, folks realized that it made much more sense for that squad of people to be integrated into the work of the communications team. And so I think it was probably only about four to six weeks after I joined, I then switched over to communications, where I stayed um, for the rest of my time at Google. But, you know, I worked on a lot of very different and diverse events and, you know, speaking opportunities and developing narratives, which just really reflected how multifaceted it was as an organization. And so Eric wasn't the only person I supported. I also worked with Megan Smith, who at the time was running Google.org, which was Google's um, humanitarian and development arm. And she later went on to be CTO of the US. And there were a few other executives. But with Eric, his real focus at the time was talking about the social and the economic impact of Google, as well as talking about how technology had the potential to impact the real sort of far-flung future of global society. So talking a lot about foreign policy, talking a lot about the impact on peace. In many ways, I think there was a lot of overlap with some of the topics I'd spent my time at the UN developing. And that was exactly why they'd come in and recruited me from there. It's really fascinating because people talk about prime ministers and leaders having scriptwriters, and you don't necessarily think, oh, that would work very well for a technology leader. So I'm absolutely fascinated about the work that you do. You went on to Facebook, which had a pivotal impact on your career. Can you tell me about your time at Facebook? And also, I actually watched this debate that you did and you had a counter argument for the assertion that Facebook is damaging society. And I thought it was a very passionate argument that you gave. For those that are interested in hearing it, because I know lots of people like to have their own opinions on it, what's your view on Facebook and do you think it's damaged society? This was an intelligence square debate in 2019, if memory serves. And the focus was on whether Facebook was a threat to democracy, which is very specific framing. Certainly, I think that 
is not the right framing and it lacks nuance. Of course, there have been things that Facebook has done and effects that have been created by Facebook that have not been helpful to democracy and have been harmful to people. I think nobody denies that and certainly Facebook doesn't deny that. On the other hand, if you're going to look at the impact of any tool in our society and to make the bold declarative statement that something has been a threat to democracy, you also have to look at what are the good impacts and to assess on balance, is this something that is a net positive for the world in spite of its challenges? And it's very important that we be able to have that nuanced view and conversation about these tools, because otherwise it completely distorts the way as a society we respond to and the way we regulate these tools. And so absolutely, I believe that on balance, tools like Facebook and other internet services have been incredibly valuable for society. On a daily basis, billions of people around the world rely on services like Facebook and Messenger and WhatsApp and Instagram and all the rest to connect with their families and loved ones. That alone, which I think is the bulk of the time that people spend on these services, that alone, to me, suggests a huge value add to society and to democracy, because our democracy relies on having a strong and healthy civil society and community. You look at the impact on businesses, the tens of millions of advertisers around the world who have built their businesses through being able to connect with people on Facebook. And you look at the impact on global civil society. You know, I talked about my father being a refugee and of course, having that moment in 2015 when I came to understand his story, that played a big part in my life because it was also a time when the global refugee crisis was reaching new peaks. At the time, I think it was about 60 to 65 million refugees in the world. And it was actually through connecting with people on Facebook groups who were going off to volunteer in places like Lesbos in Greece and on the Syrian border. It was that that led me actually to making a lot of the life changes I made at the time and actually choosing to leave Facebook and to spend a lot more time doing a portfolio of different things in my life and in my career. And I ended up doing a lot of work also to try and support refugee groups and immigrant groups around the world because of connecting with this amazing, almost army of nurses and doctors and teachers and lawyers and educators and all the rest who had been using Facebook groups to go and mobilize support for refugees around the world. So that was that debate. And that's really how I approach these things. Recognizing the full value of these tools does not mean for a second ignoring the terrible, terrible impacts that technologies can have, especially when tools are not well-crafted, when the tech industry makes mistakes, which it does frequently. But it does mean that we have to have a clear idea of these things. Absolutely. And I think that the other thing is that one thing that COVID taught me is about the fact that there is a real lack of personal accountability. I think the media, especially mainstream media, always quick to blame Facebook or Instagram if something goes wrong. And I just think, well, when, when do we take accountability? We live in a world now that lacks personal accountability. Is this something that you think about? It is. And of course, on any given day, you look at the headlines and you see terrible examples of failures in leadership and accountability. And very often, the people who are responsible, they get away with it with no consequences whatsoever. In many cases, these people actually end up getting promoted or rewarded, which of course sets a terrible example for society and I think further reduces faith in the system. I often think about the 
numbers that come out from the Edelman Trust Barometer, the annual study they do, which measures faith in what they call the system, which is governments, businesses, the media, and civil society. And every year, those numbers seem to fall further and further. It's the point that I think in the more than a dozen countries they look at, well more than half the population now no longer believes that the system works for them. There was a number I came across a couple of days ago, which found that it was, I think, only one in 10 young people in the United States believe that democracy is working well for them. These are really extraordinary numbers, and they show just this decline of trust. And I think that reflects the decline of accountability over time. It is interesting that you mentioned about politicians, because, of course, this is part of also my problem with the debate we've been having about tech. There is obviously a huge contest going on between many politicians and the tech industry over the nature of power in the world. I think a lot of politicians have reacted very negatively to the rise of powerful Silicon Valley firms, not necessarily because they're so concerned about the impact of those firms on a society, but because in a way, I think they're mad that there are other people who are having this kind of impact. And politicians today are not like politicians of previous decades where change in society could be delivered in the same way through the stroke of a pen. Change is much more nebulous and complex and technology and the fact that it has empowered so many people on a society, it has made that work much, much more difficult. When the critics of tech come along from the political class, a lot of times they want to immediately condemn the entire system because of individual mistakes or problems within that. So, you know, a social network or an internet service creates a problem. That is an example of why big tech as a whole or the tech industry is rotten to the core. But of course, every day we hear about politicians doing absolutely terrible things and nobody's saying, let's throw democracy out of the window, or at least the people who are saying that um, do not need to be listened to. Most people aren't saying we should shut down our democratic institutions because there are a lot of bad apples within that. So certainly I think we've got to get away from this idea that because there are problems, the entire structure needs to just be thrown out the window. I think that is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely. I was going to say, actually, when I was talking about personal accountability, I was also thinking about us as individuals. As individuals, obviously, it is our duty now that we're living in a technical world. We need to become more tech savvy. And I was going to ask you about how do you, because you're now at Oversight, which is the board that looks over Meta. I was going to say Facebook, but of course it's Meta now. But can <laughs> you tell me about your role? And also, I would imagine that misinformation must be one of the key things that is of importance for you to look at. Can you tell me about your role and how do you deal with misinformation? Yeah, absolutely. So the Oversight Board is an incredibly exciting and unique institution in the content moderation landscape. and For those who aren't familiar with content moderation, this is the entire field and focus of a lot of people within the tech industry on how do you make decisions about what kind of content is allowed on services. So when you read debates about things like political speech and whether something is acceptable as democratic discourse, when you read about racist emojis directed against England footballers, those are examples of things that fall within the content moderation debate. The Oversight Board was a body that was set up by then Facebook in 2020 as a body that could then go on to be independent and make binding decisions on the company, which was something that had never been done before, on their most challenging content moderation decisions. So since 2020, the board has taken on a whole bunch of cases. We've released 22 case decisions now. 
In 22 of those case decisions, we overturned Facebook 16 times. And in each of those cases, the board has also gone and made recommendations to the company. So there's the binding element of the work, and there's also the non-binding element where the board also takes the opportunity with every case to lift the hood on Facebook and Instagram, which are the platforms we look at, and to say, these are problems with your policies and your processes and how you're thinking about content more broadly go and fix these things, or at least consider fixing them. And in about 60% of those recommendations, which now number more than 100, Facebook has gone away and actually said, yeah, we're going to make those changes, or we're already you know, in the process of implementing them. So I think it's a pretty good sign that this body, which operates very independently, we've got a board of 20 members who are luminaries from around the world and leaders and thinkers. I think it's a good sign that this kind of experiment with an independent regulatory model can really deliver change for platforms operating at this immense scale and a vast amount of content. And when it comes to the question around misinformation that we had, the key thing we found when looking at cases of misinformation, which absolutely are important and occur frequently, the thing that we found is that context matters a lot. Misinformation is a thing which Everyone has their own sort of label of it. And we all naturally want to take action on things that um, are misinforming people with malicious intentions. And when we've looked at cases, there are things where you initially think it will be an open and shut case of that content should obviously go. And actually on closer inspection, it's something that was an important and legitimate part of speech and actually deserved to remain on the platform. So I'll give you an example. One of the earliest cases from the board when the board first started accepting cases towards the end of 2020 was a case involving COVID misinformation in France. It was a piece of content that had been removed by Facebook because it apparently was calling for things that were deemed harmful under their COVID misinformation policy. And when the board looked at it, we actually said, no, this is a debate that if you read the post carefully and you look at the context of it, it was a post that was calling for changes in public health policies and to have a debate about what are the right drugs that should be allowed to be prescribed under the French uh, public health system. That is a debate that people are allowed to have. It wasn't a thing that was calling for people to go out and harm themselves. It was saying that, let's talk about this. And we've got to be able to talk about these things. We need to be able to talk about things that are uncomfortable in our society. We need to be able to talk about things that... um, you know, are topics that are deeply, deeply offensive to people. And if we can't have these debates on platforms that are part of our public town squares and that connect billions of people, where else are we going to have them? I couldn't agree more. I'm all for having debate and nuance. And I think it's also up again, we're talking about kind of personal accountability. And I was going to ask you, because leading on to this, obviously you've worked with Elon, you've worked closely with Elon. Elon is now potentially going to buy Twitter and Donald Trump was banned. And even Jack Dorsey himself says it was a mistake. Like he should have been banned, but it shouldn't have been, you know, advenitum. But tell me about Elon Musk and the idea that he might take Twitter and, you know, make it more open and allow people like Donald Trump back on. What do you think about that? Well, I I won't talk about Trump just because the board has obviously made a decision on Trump and having his access back to Facebook and Instagram. On the subject of Elon, I think Elon is a phenomenal business leader. He is somebody who has a very strong vision 
about services that he thinks can advance humanity. And I think his heart is in the right place, which is we need to have platforms that are delivered in freedom of expression. We need to have those public town squares where people can talk about things that are often offensive to a lot of people, but are a legitimate part of public debate. He is naturally focused on running two extraordinarily successful companies. And he has a third company as well, the boring company, of course. But he's focused on Tesla and SpaceX. That's where the bulk of his time is currently directed. And I think the experience of my time at Facebook and then later at the Oversight Board has very much given me a lot of caution about the idea that there are easy, broad brush strokes that can radically transform the content moderation landscape. Like, actually, this is a game of nuance. This is something that does involve often making decisions that are very, very difficult and take time and involve understanding very carefully the impact of content on different communities who may be more at risk or may face different impacts of the speech than just the privileged sliver of global society like ourselves who live in safe and prosperous and peaceful societies by and large. So I do think it's something that will elude easy answers, even if it may seem seductively easy to go in and fix the company and transform the organization. I think there are some quick wins. I think Twitter as an organization definitely would benefit in many ways from his leadership. At the same time, I think the fact that content is such a challenging and nuanced game, the biggest concern I'd have is one that I have with all platforms. And it's one that led to the creation of the oversight board, which is Do we want to have a single individual or a small set of leaders at these platforms making decisions alone, which have this much consequence for society? And so the oversight board was an emphatic answer to that, which was no, it should not just be down to a few executives at a company to make these decisions off in a silo. You really need to bring in additional points of expertise. You need to engage with global civil society and with experts to understand the ramifications of making content decisions in a certain way. And so I think with Twitter, definitely if Elon were to come in, I would encourage him to think about how to open up and make more accessible those systems and those processes within Twitter and to welcome in the power of independent oversight to some of these things. And I think that would alleviate some of the concerns that other people have, which is with having a single very charismatic business leader coming in and you know saying, I want to make big changes to the system. As someone who's worked with Elon, who we were just talking about, and earlier, obviously, we were talking about Mark Zuckerberg, you've had the experience of working with them pretty closely. And I think even with Mark, you've had time outside of work together. What is something that you think the mainstream media gets wrong about them? I think a lot of the media focus on these two individuals very much through the prism of they are business leaders looking to make a lot of money. And they assume that the primary motivating force for most of their lives and the decisions they make is to make more money. And that's not true. And I'm not sure it's ever been true for either Elon or Mark. These are both very purpose-driven individuals who are trying to deliver something important for society. And of course, it's undeniable they are extraordinarily wealthy and they have built these businesses, which are huge economic engines. But the purpose of building those engines 
was to go and do something. And I think we're obviously in a time when society is facing extraordinary difficult challenges, and there is a huge gulf between rich and poor, and people are hurting. And the mood over the last couple of decades has become increasingly anti-business. When you combine that with, of course, all of the very big challenges that technology creates in our society, and the mistakes and the problems that are created by the tech industry, it's very easy to caricature the leaders who oversee that industry. But I think if we just go for that caricature and assume that that is an accurate depiction of these leaders, we end up with a very distorted understanding of who they are and the value and the utility of the companies that they have built and the services they're creating. There's a lot that I agree on with you, and, and especially when it comes to Mark and Elon, because I have seen the mainstream media really go after them on many occasions. And I do wonder what the purpose is. I've, I've worked in several different industries and I've never known an industry where the journalists go after people as much as in the tech press. It's always quite shocking to me. Talking about Mark and Elon, obviously they are purpose-driven. I think one thing they possibly have got wrong in the past is when they have talked to mainstream press or when they've done interviews, it hasn't necessarily shown the real side to them. And that's something that I think is changing because obviously Elon uses Twitter a lot now, I think more so than probably doing interviews. And Mark is now doing interviews with more independent people. Like I, he did an interview recently with Lex Friedman, which was brilliant, and Tim Ferriss. But I wondered for tech leaders today, what's your advice in terms of power of storytelling and the importance of a founder being able to not just tell the story for the investors and the shareholders, stakeholders, but also for the wider public? How important is it for founders to do that? And how can they do that? Well, I think it's critical that technology leaders have a broad conversation with the public and with society. I think that's essential for creating the kind of environment in which you will continue to have the freedom to go and innovate and to do good for the world. Silicon Valley had a golden set of years where the tech industry was growing very rapidly and the knowledge economy was booming. And you had almost the sort of veneration of tech, which allowed people to have the regulatory space and the public support to go and build almost anything they wanted. And I think it would be a mistake to assume that that environment will always exist. And I think people have become much more conscious of that now within Silicon Valley as they have seen the political and the regulatory pressure growing on the industry over the last few years. But the industry still continues to make so many mistakes. You know, even as we've seen tech leaders talking to a broader array of outlets and using social media more to communicate directly with publics, I actually think we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what it takes to go and have a real authentic dialogue with the public. Like actually the vast majority of the world does not listen to podcasts. The vast majority of the world is not actually listening to some of these influences that tech leaders think are incredibly influential. I think that influential for a small subset of people, and it's important to have those conversations. But actually, the vast majority of people in every society are just focused on trying to live. They're trying to get through the day, they're trying to put food on the table. And too often, there are these innovators who think the rest of the world lives like them. And they assume that the entire world is hanging on their every word. And it's simply incorrect. One of the sort of cardinal mistakes that I've seen over and over again in my time in the industry is this fatal assumption 
that most people, most of the time, are in agreement with the things that you take for granted. And I don't think that's true at all. Like when I started working in Silicon Valley, when I went over at the end of 2010, there were lots of people who just talked about connectivity, connecting the world as though that was the thing that automatically people would be bought into and it would be a thing that would inspire a sort of groundswell of public support for the invention of different tools and the rollout of different services. I don't think most people even know what connectivity is. It's not a word that exists in normal human lexicon. So I really do think that it's essential that people who are working on building these technologies go and spend the time to talk to a non-tech audience to talk about the value of things that they may take for granted and just assume that most people are not even vaguely prepared to understand the things you're working on. You've got to start from scratch. You've got to go and build support. And you've got to recognize that communications is integral to innovation. It is not a distraction and it is not a nice to have. Ultimately, we may not have the freedom to go and innovate and to do these things if people don't believe in them. You bring up some really good points there because I'm guilty of this as well. And I think just in my question alone, it shows my naivety because I said about <laughs> Lex Friedman and Tim Ferriss. And of course, you're absolutely right that they are reaching a particular audience. And that audience is made up of people like me, kind of tech savvy in this modern world. And you're absolutely right. It doesn't reach the everyday person. So that's a really important point. In terms of social media, I'm all for social media. And I think this is something we discussed earlier in the interview about the net good kind of outweighs the negative. And of course, I would say that because I definitely see more of the net good and I appreciate that there is negative for lots of different people. But I wanted to ask you, because as soon as this is kind of a left field question, but as soon as the war broke out in the Ukraine, I could see Zelensky was having an incredible run in terms of social media and getting his message and message of his people out there. And it has continued for all of this time. And I did think at some point, Maybe it would wane as, you know, obviously he had more important things to do, but getting his message across has, to me, won a lot of the world's help. And I wanted to ask you to see what you think. Basically, I thought if a war can be started on social media, which many purport it can be, can a war be stopped via social media, do you think? I think social media can definitely play a very important role in building peace. We've seen social media and digital content being used as part of peace building efforts by the UN and by many diplomatic services for many years. I don't think that's new. I think it would be a mistake to overstate the power of social media here, though. The war in Ukraine obviously was driven by powerful geopolitical factors, and Zelensky and the Ukrainian government have been masterful in using social media to communicate with the Western audience which is, of course, essential since the survival of Ukraine depends on arms and support from the West. Ultimately, though, if there's going to be a peace deal, that's also going to be driven by the underlying national interests and regional interests that are at stake here. And it's going to involve having serious discussions around the negotiation table. And public diplomacy and pressure that you put on different decision makers can be a part of that. Of course, the Russian government is not going to be swayed by public sentiment on Twitter from a Western audience. Like That's not a thing that they optimize for or that they care about. I think it's also important to remember that although there is clearly overwhelming support for Ukraine on social media, and it's been really inspiring to see how the world has been standing up for Ukraine and the kind of collaboration and the solidarity that people have for the people of Ukraine is clearly visible across 
a lot of the social media ecosystem. There's, of course, another ecosystem which we may not be witnessing, and it's taking place on other social networks and on other parts of the world in languages that you and I may not be consuming our content in, which no doubt is more ambivalent or is actually taking a pro-Russian stance. And this is part of the challenge of the information age, right? Assuming that what we're seeing in our information bubble represents the majority of the world's sentiment or population. I do think that support for Ukraine generally is incredibly strong, but there's also clearly an audience that isn't being engaged by this content. And so, yeah, that's really how I see things. Social media definitely has a role to play. It's it's just one part of the solution. Absolutely. In my question, I said about, you know, a war can be started on social media. I wasn't talking about Ukraine. But I do think it is fascinating. And I personally think, and again, like you said, very well said, I'm looking at it from one particular lens, but I feel like a lot of the support in terms of monetary arms, everything has come because the world is watching now with social media, the world is watching when Boris Johnson was the first Prime Minister or President to go over and visit with Zelensky. I think that was a very powerful you know, almost story, a powerful story that the world looked upon. So I see what you're saying. And I think there's there's so much more to it. I think in time to come, people are going to look back at this particular war and how it played out on social media. And it'd be interesting to see how it impacts other world leaders in the future and their use of social media. I've got a couple more questions. I wanted to know what you are optimistic about. Generally, you're in technology. <laughs> well, you see, that's the thing. I'm going to go with technology, but it's more... We are engrossed in technology and I think it impacts everything. So it's kind of hard to separate the two. But okay, let's go with with your line of work in terms of technology and where we're going. I read somewhere that you're a big fan of H.G. Wells. And and I was looking back at this world brain that he imagined in 1937. And I thought we've come so close to having this connected worlds and like you rightly do point out we're not 100% connected but we're far more connected than we've ever been I wondered if you could speak about how you're optimistic about where we might be going in the near future whether it's the metaverse or beyond yeah absolutely the way I think about it is over time driven by technology and globalization people around the world have been becoming more and more interconnected And as societies and communities and economies have become interconnected, I think it's created very powerful changes in identity. I think today, for the first time in history, there is a true global community. And that is something that I take enormous hope from. You know, it's entirely possible today to be a patriot and to love your country, but also to be an internationalist and to recognize the value of that larger human community that we belong to. And just in the last few weeks, seeing people in cities all over the world standing up for Ukraine, a place that they may have never visited, they may have no personal ties to, but which they feel strongly enough to go and stand on the streets and to galvanize support for and to provide resources for. That is just one example of that human community in action. In spite of all the challenges and divisions and the horrors of the world that continue to exist, I think the fact that there is that global community today in action gives us a very, very powerful instrument for change that no previous generation had at their disposal. And when I was growing up, We talked a little bit about what that experience was like for me and how difficult it was to try and fit myself into a box neatly. 
the fact that I came from this very diverse family background and people really wanted to try and simplify my background. And I used to think, why do I have to be assigned a label here? I think we're moving to a world beyond those simplistic labels and people are going to be judged more and more for their talents and for who they are. And it will be possible for you to have your potential unleashed without being held back by those very artificial barriers and obstacles we put in the way of people. So I guess that's how I see things. There are obviously huge, huge challenges. At the same time, as I'm optimistic about the fact we have this new instrument at our disposal, I think I'm probably much more pessimistic than a lot of other people within the tech industry who are very quick to suggest that life is good and getting better and each generation will inevitably have a higher standard of living. I don't think there's anything guaranteed whatsoever about that kind of progress. And I think there are enormous dangers out there. And one of the worst dangers will come from having a point of view that's excessively rose-tinted. Talking about that, my next question actually was what keeps you up at night? It's interesting because we, we're going back to where we started about the internationalist kind of view. You do see things very much from an international view as opposed to, and I, I put myself in this bank, I'm very bad at looking at it from just, I guess, my point of view or the point of view of those that I follow, which of course is somewhat of an echo chamber. So what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night is the fact that we have such colossal challenges coming at us with great speed. And the vast majority of the leaders and the policymakers who need to be on the front lines of solving those challenges, they aren't taking those things seriously. And I worry that our responses will be too late. We just got rocked, obviously, by the first big global pandemic of the 21st century in which millions died. And we're now experiencing all the social and economic turmoil that has come about from that. And we ain't seen nothing yet. Like there are going to be challenges that are infinitely more devastating in our lifetime if we're not prepared. And of course, the one that a lot of people have in mind is climate change. And the reason they have that in mind is because yes, that absolutely will be a bigger challenge than COVID-19 during our lifetimes. Do you feel that the world is well prepared for climate change? Because I certainly don't. I think a lot of the governmental action until now and a lot of the private sector focus has been on crafting very elaborate targets but without having clear strategies or programs or technologies for actually achieving them. And I worry that this is all stuff that sounds great on paper, which will never actually come true. So that's what keeps me up at night. I look forward, I you know desperately hope that I'll be proved wrong. But actually, I think the world is entering a new age of uncertainty and we are not ready for it. I've got a question for you now, which is even more left field than the previous one. Are you going to run for prime minister? <laughs> I've always thought, Dex, I'm not joking, I've followed you for a long time. What, would you consider a life in politics or is it totally against what you want out of your career? I definitely would consider it and I am considering it, actually. That doesn't surprise me. When I was a kid, like a lot of people who grew up wanting to go and change the world and to help improve society, I thought that the only path to doing that was through political service or through public service. And later I realized that anyone can be part of driving change. You absolutely do not need to go and work in politics to go and be part of the solution. And so I think there are many valuable, equally valid paths in which you can go and affect good. And there are all sorts of people in our society who are doing heroic things, often without any recognition whatsoever, to improve communities and to change lives and to advance thinking and, and expertise. 
And so if I end up staying in the tech industry for the rest of my career and I work on advancing change and helping leaders to do good within that field, you know, I'll feel you know perfectly fine about that. That will be my contribution. At the same time, I also very much recognize the limits of the tech industry. I do not subscribe to the notion that some critics of the tech industry have, which is that the tech industry is all powerful. You know, actually being immersed in the industry and being on the inside, you recognize just how limited those tools can be. They are an essential, but they are an insufficient agent of change. And I think government and public institutions have a critical role to play in mobilizing and galvanizing society so that we can take on those giant challenges that the world is facing. So ultimately, I may well end up going back into public service in, in a more direct way. When I left the UN at the end of 2010, I knew that I wanted to spend some time in the private sector working with you know, brilliant change makers and using the technologies and the tools and the infrastructure that would allow me to be better equipped to then potentially choose a different path and go back to public service. So we'll see what happens. Watch this space. Okay, my final question is, talking about the younger Dex and the dreams that he had and <laughs> aspirations, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you'd offer a younger Dex? Oh, that's a great question. Hmm. If I was going to give a single piece of advice to my younger self, it would probably be to be a little easier on myself. Like growing up, actually, I was always in a rush to get places. And I think partly it was the reflection of my upbringing and the fact that I realized how precarious the progress of my family was that I thought I have to always be on the move. I have to be trying to get some extra achievement. And if you only focus on optimizing for those kind of achievements, you don't tend to enjoy things as much. And later you realize that actually being able to take pride and find happiness and, and satisfaction in everything, not just to continue cranking out more work and output, that's a very important part of growing as a human being. And I think it makes you actually more resilient over the long term. So that was something that I certainly had to learn later in my career to really be able to stop and smell the roses, as it were. So that would probably be my advice to my younger self, stop and smell the roses a little bit earlier. That's great. Dex, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks, Danielle. Great to join. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Dex Hunter-Torek. As always, if you like the show, please do take a minute to write a review or to hit the subscribe button. It really helps others to find it and it means a lot to me. Finally, I know Dex is a fan of English writer H.G. Wells. And so while I was doing my research, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole of H.G. Wells' quotes and I found some wonderful ones, one of which I want to leave with you today. And it's about purpose. He writes, find the thing you want to do most intensely. Make sure that it's it and do it with all your might. If you live, well and good. If you die, well and good. Your purpose is done.